In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. The variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. This is John Matashak, and you're listening to the Monday Morning Creative Podcast. So I've been dying to, all day to talk to the to the kid who or the guy who's third generation Polish immigrants, grew up in Houston. Um, I, I am 50% Polish. My mom was born there. Um, John, can you speak it? I cannot. No, no. But my, but my, my father's grandmother did not speak any English. My babcha didn't speak any English at all. Like, and she was in this country for like 35 or 40 years, but like the hardest working, kindest woman that could do anything. And yeah. She, and, yeah. And I don't know how she navigated in this country for however long she was here for, but seamlessly, like amazing, amazing. How did you like Houston? How'd you like growing up in Houston? It was great. I mean, I grew up kind of in a small suburb outside of Houston, um, Sugarland. And so, yeah, I had a very, it was, it was a great place to grow up. Um, my, my, my parents were both educators. Um, my dad was a band director. My mom was a choir teacher. And then my dad later became an administrator of a different school district there. But no, I had a very, you know, it was, um, it was great. You know, I, I grew up where you played outside till the lights, the street lights came on and then you came, came in, you know, it was one of those kind of analog generation, I guess, you know, we didn't have devices or anything like that. So and it was just a really kind of great childhood, I suppose. How many years of your life are in Houston, John? Uh, 18. Wow. And you go right from there to Emerson. Do I have mm-hmm. that timeline right? Yeah. I, I swear, John, it's unbelievable. Whether I'm interviewing composers or actors or uh, cinematographers, I feel like Boston is like, I went to Northeastern. So I feel like Boston is like the place to be, or not Boston, Massachusetts in general. It, it has so many schools that that fulfill so many needs from so many people that have these dreams that, that, that they want to fulfill and, and carry out. It's amazing how many times a school that they go to is out of Massachusetts. It's unbelievable. Yeah, well, there's more there's more schools per square mile, I think, right? Or but like there's more schools there than anywhere in the country, I believe. And so no, it was great. Um, you know, I had yeah, it was kind of on a whim. My, I had a teacher my senior year, a creative writing teacher, submitted like a play I'd written, like not a very good play, but a play I'd written to like some Emerson Writing Awards contest. And so I think because she submitted. So this play, like they sent me an application packet. And so it was kind of like late in my senior year that I kind of even discovered Emerson and then went there to tour and, and heard some of the faculty speak. And then my parents very, they, you know, selfishly were like, okay, if you want to do this, this is, you know, you're going to be in a totally different state. You know, you're going to go from mm-hmm. being born and raised in Texas to all of a sudden we're in dropping middle of the city. And I was like, let's do it, you know, sink or swim. Um, huh. So I felt very supported um, that they kind of, you know, I, you know, got dropped off at the deep end, so to speak. Any homesickness for you, John, at first? No, no, it was very, I just, I had, um, 
I had interned at a production company in Houston over the summer. Right. Um, Bill Young Productions. It's no longer a, a thing anymore. But at the time, they were like one of the biggest uh, producers of commercials. And so like by the end of that summer, I found myself working as like a grip on like a Kroger commercial. You know, and so right, I was like, right. I learned how to use a C-stand kind of thing. And so that, I just kind of knew that I knew nothing about filmmaking. I didn't like do any kind of video production in high school or anything. And so I just knew I wanted to get some type of a leg up or know something before starting film school. And so I'd read some some books as well. There was like a used bookstore that I would go buy all these like making of these kind of classic independent films like Clerks, you know, <laughs> and Evil Dead, and like just the making of these kind of these independent films. And so one of the things I remember reading somewhere where they said like, you know, go learn all the cameras when you get to film school, just go learn the cameras, like sit down and ask someone like, how does this camera work? How does that camera work? They're all film cameras, all 16 millimeter cameras back then. Right. And so I kind of did that. I just was like, I want to learn all the different cameras, even though if I'm not supposed to be using them until I'm a junior, I still want to learn it and, and be know how to use it as soon as possible. And so, yeah, I found, found that time at Emerson was just really, um, really great. There's a lot of hands-on experience. You know, and um, I have questions about camera. It's funny that you say that, but I'm, I'm going to hold off on that. Um, I did want to say, do you feel it was a BA in film production? Is that right, John? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, film production and film theory, I guess, technically, something like that. When you look in the rear view, how vital do you view Emerson as part of your path? For me, it was probably essential. Mm-hmm. But I think any kind of film school, you know, I, I feel like coming out of film school or college in general, it's where, like, at least for me, I learned how to learn. And so by the end of that, you kind of know your process or know how you kind of interact with the world and how you can learn. So was there specific things I learned? Yes. But I think it was more just the mentality of figuring out a process or, or learning how to learn was essential. Um, and so for me it was, cause they had like this extension program. I think they still do where, you know, they take these kids from Boston they drop you off in LA and they're like, cool, get your internship and kind of like feed you to the wolves kind of thing. And so that was great too. It was like, there's camaraderie in a group of people, you know, coming out from school in Boston to like moving to LA. Um, and so I moved out like, yeah, 2002, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, I still keep in touch with a lot of my, my film school friends and colleagues and peers, you know, and this past year I actually shot two features with a film school friend of mine. Wow. And so, yeah, it's funny how things, (laughs) how it all kind of comes back full circle. And I wonder how much of what you have or what you are is just, you were born with it or practice or, because I have to say like researching your life, even I was looking like at some of your pictures on Instagram, even like the stuff you do casually is like beautiful. Like, I, I mess up pictures with my daughter. I'll, I'll take it 20 times. You know, eyes are getting crossed. I mean, there's it's just terrible. I'm terrible. I was looking at one you had of your of your beautiful family. And it was like a, the Christmas tree was over. It looked like something out of a, a a Rockwell painting. I mean, it was just like stunning. Like, I mean, I, I don't know how much of that is natural for you or years of just working at it. But Jesus, John, are, are you meant to be doing what you're doing? Well, thank you. Yeah, those, those Christmas photos are definitely a thing. There's a, we need to get back on them because we always wanted a Christmas photo. We're like, how can we do it different? You know, and so I say are, you su- the, I think you succeeded in that. Those always take a fair amount of time and lots of stitching of different different photographs together. I feel like I have to relearn Photoshop every year. Every December, I'm relearning Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, boy, but but you but you you have it done really really well. And then you know, after Emerson, you go to the the Czech National Film School. Is that correct? Yeah, they had a they had a um, again a, a program where you could do like a semester over at in Prague, and gotcha, so like, gotcha. and um 
yeah, that was that was monumental. That was really monumental because I feel like it was just you're in a you're in you're in a different country, a different style of filmmaking. You're learning the history of like the Czech New Wave and what they did, um, and so it, that was really. And some of the professors, they were actual real filmmakers that had shot these films that you'd seen that, you know, on Criterion collections and stuff. And so, like, it was just kind of this eye-opening experience of, like, for me, I felt like I learned the power of the close-up. Or, like, that was, like, the power of the close-up and when to use the close-up. I feel like that whole semester, my whole time there, it was, like... When, when to use a close-up and then how to frame a close-up. And obviously, obviously, you know, you, uh, you kind of take that and, and run with it over the years. But yeah, that, if anything, I remember that. It was like the power of the language of cinema um, yeah. and the power of the close-up. It was you know, great. You know, John, and, and I feel like cinematographers, um, I, I feel like each has their own strength that they would admit to, right? So I had Dan Lauston on a couple months back. He, he did um, um, Nightmare Alley. He's known for his phenomenal lighting. Like Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro just loves it. Is there something that you believe is your strength that you do really well? I mean, from my end, you do a lot of things really well. But how about from your end? Do you, do you is there a, not, I mean, it's not you being arrogant either. It's just something you feel that you're really strong at. Um, I know in the kind of commercial world that I, I kind of have been working in, for a fair amount of years though, like I feel like I would get hired or people would respond to the way I shoot portraits or the way I shoot close-ups kind of could bring this back to that thing we're yes, talking about yeah, film school yeah. even, you know? Um, yep. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's something, you know, it's, it's, it's where you place the camera, you know, it's those two inches higher or lower or to the left or, or, or taking that half step in right before the director says action, you know, that make the difference on stuff like that. So I don't know. I feel like I'm always trying to push or find the, find the next, find the frame that interests me. You know, if something doesn't interest me, I'm always searching up until the last minute. <laughs> yeah. Even, even if the slate's already, you know, if, if you're not happy with a frame or a composition or something, you know, there's always something to be done to it. But I, in terms of strengths, I, it's like, I feel like I have to let other people kind of, respond to the work, you know, I feel like every project's so different, you know, yeah, um, yeah. for a while. I mean, I, 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 I like using the appropriate tools for the job, you know, I'm not, not the kind of, you know, if it can be, if it can be done simply, um, I'd rather do it simply than complicated, I guess, in terms of like tools and technique. Cause sometimes you can get bogged down in the technique and the tools, um, rather than just, this idea of you have a, you have actors and you have a camera and you have choices, you know, I mean, that, right. that's not how you, how I break it down almost on, you know, on a day to day level, I guess, you know? And so I don't know, I'm constantly reminded of that. Like it's all about just the choices we make on the day. Um, cause the frames last forever, you know, or they should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's really well said, you know, and, and I've heard you on, on a few cinematography podcasts and I really find out how much I don't know about cinematography like i i can watch your work john and be like god damn that scene is is beautiful or that what he just did there is, is is just so beautiful how he used that that those different lenses but like i feel like it's the terms john that i'm just so confused with like even you were talking you wanted to be about a ari alexa mini is that correct uh, mm -hmm. uh, like i'm like what the hell like and, and i'm looking at, and it's just camera that's like extremely expensive and i wish i knew that lingo better like i wish i didn't come across as such a simpleton when it comes to you know the the terms or like uh, a tiffin uh filter like i'm like i wish i knew that like without googling it or a movie, <laughs> or, or a movie pro like i wish this was my, like i'm gonna own it like 
I, I know cinematography, but yet I know how much I don't know. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's and and I mean, I, I feel like you kind of like the the technology is moving so fast these days with all these kind of manufacturers. So it's really great. There's a lot of different resources, and like every month there's new tools, there's new terms where I think as, as cinematographers we're even having to learn, you know, in terms of uh, adopting uh, tools and technology that that make our sets uh, more efficient, which allows ultimately for like more creative storytelling to happen you know if, if we can be efficient on set um with time and energy you can you can take you can have more choices then yeah yeah and i wanted to touch on one more thing before we move on to some of the entries in your amazing filmography uh, you talked earlier about school high school in particular uh when you were when you were young and i thought i read somewhere john where you tried instead of you know writing the typical research paper you know read the book the site do all this other stuff you said, listen, I'll write a script. I'll, I'll make a video. Is that true, that part of your life? That is true. It was a, it was a history professor in my high, in high school, um, was Coach Madden. And he would kind of put on these elaborate kind of multimedia displays to like show us about different events in history. And so I remember when we came time in the semester to like write a big paper, I was like, I don't really want to. That sounds... <laughs> not fun and so i kind of somehow convinced him hey can i do a video can i do a video project and he said sure and so that was kind of that was the first time i'd like got you know convinced some friends together to like shoot a little thing on high eight edit it in camera while you're doing it and overdub music and titles and, and all that kind of stuff so yeah <laughs> and i did it again my senior year with um my English teacher as well is like, I, I, I convinced her that I was like, well, let me write a script and then I'll film the script. And that'll be like what I would be writing instead. Yeah. And what, and what teacher would not be all in on that? Like that's, you're going, I mean, I know for you, it would be more torture to write the research paper, but probably in actuality, you're doing more work with the, the path you wanted to go down. Right. More hours. And that was, yeah. I think that's why my parents eventually were like, okay, well he can go to film school. Cause this is the first thing that he's spending hours doing when we're not having to convince him to do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just been hours and hours and hours staying up late, way too late trying to edit these, you know, these makeshift terrible video projects. <laughs> you mentioned clerks earlier in some indie films, but what, is there a film that really, and you've probably been asked this on every interview you've ever been on. Is there a particular movie that really just, or an actor that really pumped you up when you were younger that, to get you at this point? Because, I mean, you're clearly been passionate for since you were a kid. I mean, and, and it resonates even in this interview, listening to you talk about it. Um, is there an actor or a movie or movies that really did it for you, John? I mean, I feel like there was a film, and I don't know if it was at the time or like just immediately after looking back. I remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, good call. Because that was yeah. kind of this film that was like it was definitely it was not a lot of CG in it. It was things were done practically and. There's just something about that film. We're seeing the theater, and then and then when it came out, even I think there might have been even some behind the scenes I had found on VHS somewhere. This is before DVD stuff. I just remember like that film being pretty pretty pivotal in terms of just this idea of making a film. I think that was one of the first films where I was like, oh wow, they actually had to go make that. And how would that be to actually make that film? Like, what would you need and that kind of thing? And so I feel like that was pretty inspirational film from a very young age yeah. um and obviously 2001 kind of as you kind of as i 
grew up, I guess it was like that film as well. Braveheart was another one that I just w- would watch over and over and over again. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's a VHS burn it out or DVD burn it out from watching it so many times. Good call. Yeah, yeah. I remember I watched it and then I immediately just watched it again. You know? <laughs> so this is some of the, the early. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you're the real deal for sure. And, and knowing that we were going to talk about Old Henry, um, I tried to say to myself, John, I said, what are the five best westerns I've seen since the year 2000? And this is my list. You could give or take it, maybe add or subtract. Uh, News of the World with Tom Hanks came out last year. 310 to Yuma, which I think has a little bit of Old Henry in it and vice versa. Open Range, uh, Django Unchained, and Old Henry is my fifth. Um, what do you wow. think of that list? Top five since since 2000. I mean, yeah, those are all great, great films. You know, I mean, I think those are all really amazing films. That's what's so great about the Western. It can kind of these, you know, it's a genre of film, but within that, it, it can, the, it can range from being so many different types of tone yes. too, you yes. know, from, because yes. 310 to Yuma has a very different tone than open range. Very, and then also yeah. very different tone from Django, you know, and very, very different than old Henry. So it's such a fun genre, I think, to kind of play in and kind of, you know, have your spin on it. Um, but no, I mean, I've, we've been, you know, we've been so blown away and taken aback by the response to old Henry. And, and like you, like you just mentioned, it is in these like lists or when people say 20 top 20 films or top this films. And so it's just, it's really just, you know, there's so many films I think filmmakers work on, you know, and it's so rare to kind of have something that kind of breaks out and, and, and has the, makes as much noise as this film does for what it was a small, a small film, <laughs> a small, yeah. small, intimate film made by a bunch of friends, you know, ultimately. And, and I have to say, I never lose track of movies. Like I know what's coming out. I'm usually at the theater or, or video on demand or whatever. I, I catch a movie. This slipped. I, I mean, I had a friend recommend this. And I don't know how I missed it, John, at first. I mean, I was a few months behind. And then when I saw it, I was just so pissed at myself because I'm telling you, it's just, it's unbelievable. I, I, I just, um, you know, the other movie I would have added to this movie, I, I, I love the way it looked. I'm not sure I liked the movie so much. It was good. But uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford mm-hmm. visually is one of the most beautiful, pretty, uh, just gorgeous movies I've ever seen. I, I, and Roger Deakins is a master at that. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously when you kind of step into western it's like hard not to look at the kind of the contemporaries you know like like roger deakins with with that film that film was definitely inspirational yeah um yeah. you know just just the the simple beauty it created i, I feel like there's there's something just about there's something it's just so painterly i guess it's so like kind of poetic and painterly about that that yeah. film John, are you the same? Because I was listening to Roger Deakins talk, and, and he's big on, like, if he could, I think he would just fire the editor and let let his shots lead, like, no cuts, three- or four-hour movies, just leave them the way they are. He's so proud of his work, as he should be. Um, do you ever feel like that? Not not to crap on editors or directors, but do you ever feel like, Jesus, I really shot some really good stuff. I wish more was left. Not necessarily just in Old Henry, but any of your projects. As a cinematographer, do you have so much pride where you're like, I wish that's still in there or you have to kind of accept that being part of the team. I, I, you know, I think maybe younger in my career, you kind of, you kind of have these things, these ideas of, Oh, this dolly shot was so complicated to do, or, Oh, we rehearsed forever to do this one take and make it all one shot. And then they, you know, it gets cut up. But I, I mean, now, now I think it's all about the story, you know, ultimately it's all about the story and, and how does the piece feel as a whole? Um, Cause ultimately that's what matters is creating this, 
the story, whether it's a 30 second commercial or 90, 90, 90 second film or a, you know, two and a half hour film, it's all about yeah. the story. And so I think as long as if that's the priority and that's the focus for the whole team is, is what kind of tells that story emotionally the best, like what, how do you emotionally tell that story? So you feel something at the end of it, you know, whatever supports that, you know? Um, and so, no, I mean, I, I think if anything, when I kind of wrap a project, and kind of having the conversations with the directors as they're going through cuts and stuff. If anything, I, do, I just like to kind of either just remind, remind of these things. If there, if there's something that you don't see represented in the film, you know, you just kind of like remind, remind and have conversations, you know, and ultimately if it's not, if it's not right for the film, it's not right for the film. Yeah. That's, yeah and- that's, that's what it has to be. You know, it's not about one, one frame, one shot. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I get that. I get that. And, and, you know, just speaking of your website, which, which is on the screen, I have to say you have some beautiful, all your work is beautiful, but the movies, the stills you have from old Henry, it's like one gorgeous shot after another. It's like, geez, like, uh, and I love the way your website is put together, by the way. I had, I had to oh, thank you. That. Yeah. It's really, it's effective. It's simple. It's to the point. It's, this is my work for those who may have missed something. It's all laid out. It's a really great website versus mine, which look like I have a second grader designing it. But hey, you know, uh, your your website is certainly worth it. Uh, so let's get it to old Henry. Um, you know, you and Potsy and, and, and fill in the blanks here for me. You, you go to Tennessee. There's there's this 3000, I guess, a farm, 3000 acre mm-hmm. farm. And there's a Potsy is scouting for another movie. Um, and he notices this house at the at maybe on the bottom of the hill. Um, it ends up being the house that Henry lives in. Um, do I have that part right, John? And that's a super Cliff Notes version of. of no, you do. He had he had sent me a script. Um, this is probably a couple of years before he even sent me the old Henry script. And he's like, "Hey, I think I'm going to do this western, scouting different areas." They scouted like you know Kentucky. They scouted Tennessee. They scouted New Mexico. I think at some point uh, Oklahoma. And so yeah, they were literally scouting for this other film and 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 found this property. And I think it was so the property itself was so inspiring and i think you know i think potsy's even said he's like oh wow what if i was like stuck out here and then you know and 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 he kind of envisioned what that would be like to kind of be out there on your own um and and then that was kind of the genesis for you know the script old henry now the whole movie john is filmed in that area correct Or, or or a good vast majority of it it is, yeah. We're all on one kind of one, yeah, on on the three thousand acres, or just about three thousand acres, yeah. So it's like everything was within either a you know four by four truck or a gator kind of crawl to get to wherever we were. Yeah, and you know, John, one thing I never thought of was the research and time you put into this. Um, as far as researching the photographs, researching the paintings of the time, uh, talk about that a little bit because I think history is huge in your profession, right? Especially in a project like this. And you certainly captured the essence of what this movie was supposed to be through that research. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that was immediately where I went to before once, once it had all come together and I'd read the script and, and he was like, okay. And Potts was like, Hey, we're going to you know start prepping this thing. I think I immediately just went to the photography. I was like, how could you not to try to be like, how would it feel like to put oneself in that position? Like how would it actually feel? to live in that time period. What are those people? What are those fathers? What are those mothers? What are those sons? What was, what was that lifestyle like? And so um, I just went down a rabbit hole for a couple of weeks. I think of only looking at black and white images. I feel at one point I even had a dream. I feel like that was in black and white that would look like this photograph <laughs> because I've been looking at those photographs for so long. So like, well, before we looked at any kind of film references, um, 
for the film. Because that we didn't, Potts and I had a very shorthand about that. It was more just kind of, we talked about the tone of the film we wanted to make. We wanted things to feel heavy and weathered and textured. And so, yeah, those, those, those photographs were just, they were inspiring. You know, those, those photographs, when I was looking at, because a lot of times too, this early photography, people had to stand still and like kind of have an awkward pose. And then, so it made them kind of, you ever like look into their eyes or into their portraits and almost like, and if you, and if you're quiet enough and while you're looking at things like that, sometimes they'll speak back to you. And so like, I felt I was having this kind of trying to like have them speak to me. Um, these people that had lived a hundred, 150 years ago, like yeah. what would that have been like? And then try to like do justice to like what that lifestyle was like, you know, the harshness of it. And it's interesting because someone commented, they were like, after the fact, um, like oh is that why you kind of did more center framing on some things like you center framed and had a little bit more headroom you think that was inspired by all that photography and i go i don't know i mean like i didn't actively have that as like a rule of thumb but i had ingested all this research you know ahead of time so when i was framing up certain shots on set you just in, instinctually something in me says to do something. And that's probably because I had been looking at these photographs for so long, you know, right. or, or you see how you see how things in the background look, you know, especially with, um, you know, Andrew Wyeth, the painter, the American painter, like his stuff is just incredible at how kind of simple, like the, the lives he's trying to tell, right. These simple lives, but there's like so much emotion. And, and, and the paintings and like what causes that and it's like oh it's the details in the background and so like looking at those paintings and stuff would then i'd be like oh i want to have this on the table i want to have like a, a a bowl on the table with eggs in it right now just because like i had seen that in a painting you know um so yeah. it's like you're just yeah. inspired by different things that make you feel something and so i was constantly trying to just put the put that into the film you know oh, put, yeah. like put that into in there john safe to say it worked uh you know um I, I, I was dying to play you a clip, but I don't want to ruin the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it yet that's watching this interview. Hopefully I can describe one of the scenes that, that's just not just in this movie. Like I'm talking in the last 10 years that, that just I did not see this coming and I'll leave the reveal to the side. But I want to talk about the way you and Jordan Lenning, the composer, just work hand in hand and that when they finally figure out who he is, their big reveal, right? Um, he figures it out. The music is is hit. Jordan's music is amazing. And then your camera work, as he's walking in the other room after passing his son on the left, you purposely kind of make it, phase it up. You, you know what I'm talking about? It, it gets fuzzy. And then when it gets back in again, it goes to a picture of the, re the reveal. I thought that whole three minutes was effing genius. Like, I have never seen... I Maybe because I was caught off guard, but the way the cinematography works and the composition works and what Potsy was trying to achieve, it is perfect movie making. It's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I will have to say that was one of those scenes where you read it on, on the page and you're anxious about that up until you shoot it because you're like, this is one of those pivotal scenes that if it's done incorrectly, it doesn't work. Right. You know, you, you almost have to kind of, the scene has to be elevated beyond, beyond the page, beyond the ideas that we all were kind of coming out with. And I, I will have to say that Scott Hayes, he's a, you know, he's a fear. He's just a ferocious actor. He's a beautiful human. 
Um, he's just a, a great, just all around kind of um, collaborator and his performance in that moment. I mean, I, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about that performance because I remember on, being on set. We, I feel like we only did one or two takes of it and he just brought, he was, he was in the zone. He was, they were, these, you know, the actors were just in the zone on this film. And so when he brought that, that performance, I mean, I, I tell him that's why the movie works is like that, that scene right there, you know, like, and, and that's all him. It's like a very kind of lengthy monologue kind of to himself that he has to, that you have to believe that you have to believe that like, you have to go on that journey and see it. And so, um, again, and with, you know, I think with the whole film, we tried to just be really simple with the camera, you know, and, and try to let the actors be in the space, be in the moment, be in, be in the emotions. And so, again, I feel like there's only four or five shots in that whole sequence. Once he, once Henry gets up to leave the room, you know, we've got a shot that follows him. We've got a shot that stays on, on, on Scott Hayes right there that, that's the one shot that does it. I mean, we did shoot a profile, but we didn't even use it. Cause like, you don't need to cut away from his performance. It's so good. And then, yeah, I remember when we um, were making that decision to kind of leave it out of focus, it was a one, it was one of those things where like, I think Tim was just kind of walking through it and they, and we were kind of set up for it. And then we kind of, he was just going through his motions and, and, and the camera was just kind of sitting there and we all looked at each other and said, Oh, we have to, we're, we're doing that. We're not, we're not racking to that. We're going to leave that out of focus. So that was not something that we had gone into that scene um, with that intention. So that was wasn't, that wasn't planned going out of focus when he's walking to the room. It was one of those things of like, Oh wow, that let, maybe that works better. And then it kind of did. And then we left it there. And because it's like, you know, you give some mystery, you still want some mystery in there. So it kind of, it worked, you know, it was a choice. And, oh, and you know, and Potsy and I are just, we, we're very, we're very kind of, simpatico i guess on that in terms of like our aesthetics and and the films that we like and the films that we like to make together and so we just instantly were like yes let's do that you know and didn't even think twice about it you know do you want to get a safety that's in focus no we're good move on yeah that's and to it go from, you know to go from that to the the what's on the ground mm-hmm. and to the picture and it's unbelievable how much tim blake nelson it, it resembles you know it's, it's amazing yeah it's he, he channeled him i feel like he channeled you know, he re- re- reached back into the, into the, into the collective consciousness and uh, definitely um, channeled. And I'm glad you brought up Scott Hayes because he is so freaking good in this. And he narrates the scene without narrating the scene. Do you see what I'm saying? Like his line, he is talking to that audience and he is dictating what is happening. And as he's piecing it together, the audience is piecing. Like the fact that this was one or two takes, it makes it even more surreal for me. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, he, that, yeah, he had, I mean, it's funny talking about Scott a little bit more. Like it's funny in that film, there was like, he, he, cause he's a, you know, wounded gunslinger that, that Tim Blake Nelson brings in. And so like, it's funny half the film, he's almost not doing anything cause he's wounded and he's hurt. And, and then he has to carry these massive scenes. There's like a dinner table scene where again, he's got these massive amount of, of scenes that, it's just, it was an awe to watch that process. Cause like, you know, these, you know, these handful of scenes that are just made by his performance. Um, obviously, you know, Tim Blake Nelson as well, but I remember that, that dinner table scene, uh, where it's just a conversation is like a seven minute, maybe a 10 minute long scene where it's just a conversation at dinner table. And the director and I were so excited about that scene. So we we're just like, this is going to be a scene. We're going to make this a scene. <laughs> and it's just, it's so simple too. Right. We're just like, yeah. this is going to be a thing. Like we have to like, you know, just take our time with that. When I compared the three ten to Yuma earlier, I, I thought the ending, um, 
not not in like in a, in a in a kind of copied way, but in a, in, a, in a, just a, just the way the path goes. Uh, I wonder if 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 Potsy or you or anybody thought about um, uh, thought about perhaps a different ending. You know, because it was very. Um, there's something about those kinds of losses that hit my heart, like the 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 the, the son finding life on his own, and um, I don't know. Is I, I always like that, but I get it. It, it makes the story better. Uh, did you do you think that that was ever discussed a, a, an alternate type of ending? I don't think so. I mean, there was some there was some alternate action stuff that we had to kind of adapt. Um, but I think for the actual for the ending ending, it's you know it's one of those films where you just kind of it just yeah. I mean, I think the ending was always going to be that. I think it had to be that. You know, it was you know um, yeah. Yeah, the the I want everything perfect and 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 the uh, the Shane running off in the sunset. That's my that's my issue, not yours. But what what a wonderful movie! I, I wanted to say that that last shootout at the end, that was really great. That whole as you're filming that shootout at the end, um, just we talked about Scott a little bit. Just whatever you wanted to say about Tim Blake Nelson and Steven Dorf, who I feel like are two of the most underrated, underappreciated actors alive today. Like these guys can just flat out act. There's like when I watch a, a show, John, or I watch a movie, I'm like, oh boy, this person's just rattling off a script. There is not a part of me that that didn't believe the lingo that was going back and forth, and that these guys weren't on each either side of good and bad. Like I thought this was really to me, it was like watching a documentary. I thought this was really happening. That's how effective I think these two are. And they were, I mean, they're both fierce, ferocious actors, right? I mean, they just kind of embody. You know, I think that they both have very different methods of working. And so that's always an interesting to kind of see people's processes. Um, but yeah, I mean, they both, to pull off kind of some of that script and some of that dialogue that is challenging to make it, like you said, believable. And so, I mean, that, that final shootout where it's just kind of where it breaks down to just them in the woods, that was something that we were really excited about. Um, from one the of the best beginning. scenes in the one of the best scenes in the movie, really, just a great like old fashioned. That's how it would have been seen in the Wild West. Yeah, and that scene kind of came about. Originally, there was going to be like they were going to cross into a creek, and it was going to be a drowning thing. It was going to be more of a kind of it, it was going to be more of a kind of hand to hand thing. And then at the last, this is maybe like a week before we were supposed to shoot that. They'd already like choreographed it as well. Uh, we came back that we couldn't. They tested the water as you do to make sure that, you know, you can put actors in it. And it came back that we couldn't do that. There was stuff in the water that act, that prevented us from submerging actors in the water. Gotcha. And so it kind of, yeah, it was fall back to like, what is just, the, what is these two powerhouse characters that represent kind of good and evil? What, what should they do? And it's like, Oh, let's do the, let's just do this shootout. And Potsy was like, I just want an old fashioned shootout. Something that, is you know just it, it was definitely inspired by open range just in terms of kind of how that that i think the um the violence was kind of handled yeah um, and one of the things i remember talking about early on was like counting of the bullets and how many bullets and that was something that was very important to us to make, to make it sure that like you actually got to see what it would be like like you would would have to reload you may drop one you only have so many shots because i think in a lot of films guns just go off and you're kind of unaware of it. You know what <laughs> Car, I mean? As cars, far as go, like, cars going 80 miles an hour and they have one bullet left. And, and yeah. You know, I mean, there's films where that works and I think that's great where it's just, it needs to just be the chaos and, and that works for it. But for this, I feel like to kind of be true to this kind of authentic, authentic thing that we were all 
kind of going for. And so that final shootout was something that we had the shot list. We shot listed the whole movie, but that one in particular, we had our shot list and it was really, um, we shot that entire sequence probably in like two and a half to three hours um, on our last day of filming. And we had to shoot it. We actually shot it in the editorial order because we had to based on the, where the light was as well as how we were doing the blood makeup effects. Right. Cause a lot of that was done in camera. And so it had to be done in a way where we were pointing this way for one shot. Now we turn around and shoot this way. Now we would do that way. Now. We, so we literally shot it in almost, um, you know, editorial order. And there was not more than I, I think that was, everything was basically a take or two takes because we were so limited um, on time. And so I have to give it up to my just amazing crew that kind of had no idea what was going on because we were just like, okay, camera here now. And they just were like, they were, they were, they were on it, you know? And, and David Afferton who did our, our makeup, our special makeup and effects, he's just a legend, um, you know, in, in the, in the business. And so it was just a, a dream to be able to collaborate with him. And so I think his, his part in, in that whole sequence, you know, is, is just his collaboration on the film. Um, it was just an honor to, to work alongside him. You know, he, I think one of his early films was um, Tombstone. So it's like we've got the makeup special effects, you know, legend that did Tombstone is now working on our movie. You know, I think him and Tim worked together a bunch. And so he brought, Tim was able to kind of convince him to come make this movie with us. But um, yeah, that final shootout was really wild in the sense of, um, yeah, there was, was, was no, no, it was no room for air in yeah. terms of filmmaking because it was our last day. We yeah. were losing the light because of other things we got there a little later and we just had to shoot it in such a way. And so it's one of those, one of the proudest moments I know Potsy and I have, there's like two scenes like that on the film where there's nothing left. There's nothing in the ed- editorial bins. It's all there. There's actually yeah. one shot where you actually, the camera focuses in and you could tell it's like the foot rack focus from the slate in and they added it, you know, they, they needed to like lengthen that one shot. So you actually see a, it kind of like racks in the focus on one of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think works for the with the emotion, but like every frame that we shot is in there. I don't think there's a single unused frame. Yeah, and, and it's it's amazing the it, what Potsy put together as far as just everyone involved. Like, I mean, I remember Jordan just talking about how great your cinematographer and you guys are all complimentary of each other, and it's the proof is in the pudding. It's on screen. Uh, the other scene, which I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I loved, was the floorboard scene. I thought that was freaking creative as all hell, uh, and it was just so much fun to watch. Like. What a creative scene. I mean, it's it's almost horror-like in a sense that, like, where is this? What is going on here? It's dark out. I mean, another phenomenal scene, John. And that and that's a scene that came about because of the location. Originally on the script, that was supposed to be in a barn. But we didn't have a barn. And so it's like, remember Potsy being like, look, look this house is up on some some stones, you know, it's up on some, it's built on, on kind of up. So we, we uh, would, it would make sense that you would go under there. And so that, again, that, again, that's one of those scenes that every time we would envision that scene, talk about that scene, storyboard that scene, we would just get more and more excited as filmmakers. And so every time we'd have a tech scout or a new actor would show up, we'd go to the scene, we would get excited just showing the scene to them, you know, yeah, Pots and yeah. I would be like acted out in our own way, just be like, Oh, this is what's going to happen. You know, Cause we were so excited about it, you know? Was that was that house abandoned or does somebody live there? That house is um it's one of the 
it's one of the original settlers' cabins for that area. So that wow. cabin's actually from like eight, like eighteen eighty or something like that. So it's actually that the house is really old, and so over the over the time, it's been used for different like fun of photo shoots, or now it just is available for filming. Yeah, um, you know, a yeah. bunch of music videos and stuff like that. So it's just kind of this property that has these like structures on it. So yeah, it was, what was really amazing too is that the, the the house was there, but then our art department came in and kind of aged it and. And, and did just an amazing job to it. Added them, added that porch because that was actually the back of the house, but we made that the front of the house in the film. Because um, there's actually a road on the other side of the house that we never shoot, obviously. But so it's actually we kind of reversed the geography of the house. And then what they did was to build onto the house because they wanted to kind of keep the integrity of the structure. They actually took some old barn wood from structures of that same era and then built it, built what we built on with actual wood that was like, you know, 125 years old. So that's pretty special. I think that like the way in which we were building onto the set to kind of keep it authentic, I guess, you know, with, with using existing wood from the, around the property. Very creative. Uh, two quick questions, John, thank you for all this time. Um, the, the one, one of which is when you saw this for the first time, fit when it was edited, finished and, you know, previewed premiere, uh, what was your first take on it? Were you, I mean, I know people say sometimes they get very critical of the final product, not, not of the product, but of themselves in the product. I could have done this. I could have done that. What was your re- initial reaction, John? I remember this is, this is a good one. I, there was a, um, we went to a tech screening and a tech screening is something that happens. You know, if you're having a big premiere at a festival where you go in and you maybe get like 15 minutes in the room with like your producer, you know, for me, it was the producer's, um, the director and myself and we were basically just kind of like screening 10 minutes of the film you know we should ju- just to see and make sure that it looks good the sound you know check the volume level you do all these things right and so i remember we watched the opening sequence and we just kind of pots and i just turned to each other and we both i mean it was, a, it was an out-of-body experience and we both kind of were like i think we just made a western <laughs> it was like the first time it actually hit us, you know, cause you're watching on kind of laptops or screens or yeah. you're in the DI suite. And so it's all little mechanical. You're overly critical of it all, trying to get it all, you know, you're still working on the film at that point. So you don't really get a sense of like what the scope of it is. Um, and so, yeah, we were, we were at the, yeah, one of the, the palais at, um, in, uh, in Venice. And it was just, it was just this amazing, you know, huge theater, huge screen, and you're like, our work is about to be seen on this giant. This is incredible, you know, for, I don't know. It was, it was, it was just one of those experiences where it was, it was, it was, it was a moment. It was a moment. And it was like, I think we just made a Western. Yeah. My only regret is I did not see it on the big screen. I, I wish I did. I wish I did. Because I think this is a movie that's perfect for the big screen, you know. Uh, tell me about Heart of a Lion and Acid Man, two of my uh, next projects that I'm, I'm going to watch. I, I want to be a part of this. Tell me what you can. Heart of a Lion, I think, is still in production. Acid Man, I think, is done, or if not close to it. Acid Man is premiering. Um, Acid Man is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. I think next week, actually, wow. the week after next. So that's cool. I'm very excited about that. That was done with um, Alex Lehman was the director of that. He's an old film school friend of mine, and so that was a, a project. This a, a project he'd been wanting to make for a while, and so. Um, yeah, really proud of what we did on that film. It has Thomas Hayden Church in it, and um, oh, he's great. Uh, Diana he's great. Agron, and they're both just—they're both great in it. You know, it's a—it's 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 an intimate film about two about a father and a daughter trying to to connect. You know, um, 
Yeah, and then, and then Heart of a Lion is is just is kind of a is just kind of a massive scale like biopic of George Foreman, you know, from his yeah. days as a as a, a boxer and then a minister and then a boxer again. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see. I'm excited for everyone to see what what we've <laughs> been working on because it's um it's been it's been it's been great. Yeah, and, and I'm very excited about both, and I'm very excited about your future, John. Um, boy, are you talented, and, and thank you so much for giving me the time you gave me today. Um, big fan, and, and and I truly, truly love your work, John. Oh well, thank you so much. I mean, that's really like wow. That's so to, I don't know to hear kind of reaction like that, or, or you know, response to my work. You know, it's like um, you know, it, it takes outlets and podcasts, and it, ta- it it takes people sitting down and talking to 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 hear more about the process and more about it. So it, it means a lot. You know, it does take these outlets and and, and places to discuss films. And it's, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a lover of cinema. I love cinema, and so it's like any any chance to talk about it, uh, it I love it shows. Too, so. Yeah, so, uh, I, no, thank I, you. <laughs> and I told Jordan, I said, when I was done with watching this movie the first time, I said, I wanted to, I wanted to beat your door down and Jordan's door down, and just give you guys high fives for what you guys just created. I mean, I, I was sitting next to my wife and I just kept talking about the cinematography, and she goes, "We would just stop talking." You know, I go, "We, I go, listen to this music, listen to look, look, look what's on the screen." Like she's like, "We just stop. You're ruining it for me." But uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of of you, John. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's, um, thank you. <laughs> and, and I'm, just, I'm just glad you're able to see the film, you know? And so, you know, um, yeah, it's just, you do this work and you work on a small, you know, like you, like an intimate film, you just hope, hope it resonates. So, um, yeah, we're just, we're just excited that people have seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and nothing but the best for you in the future, John. And I hope you come back on someday. Yeah, I would love that. I would love yeah. that. Thank you for listening to Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also connect with Monday Morning Critic on Instagram and Facebook, MDM Critic on Twitter, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. All episodes available, www.mmcpodcast.com.